<laughs> Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Yeah. Today, we have a couple special guests in the studio with us, the authors of The Forever Dog. We're here with Dr. Karen Shaw Becker and Rodney Habib. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. So excited to be here. We were just awesome. talking off camera, Karen, about... Um, yeah, we did the minimal episode already, and now we're we're sort of talking like this isn't a topic that Ryan and I would sort of address on our own, right? Yeah. Although it is the topic that comes up more frequently than anything else uh, of all the topics that we haven't covered, and people call in all the time, they write in with questions, and so I wanted to do an episode about this because this is on the top of people's mind. I don't, I feel like I can't be a minimalist because of my pets, or I feel like I can't simplify my life mm. because of my pets, but it may be that. By simplifying your life, it allows you to actually develop a relationship with your pets instead of simply being a pet owner. Yeah, exactly. You By you freeing up space and time, you can work on developing the relationship with the animal. You have the time. You have time to... To, to train your animal. You have time to get to know your animal's personality. You have time to focus on your animal's needs. You have time to exercise your animal. You have time to create the relationship that you've always wanted with your animal. Mm. And oftentimes we're so busy that we don't give our animals the time that they need. And in turn, they end up with behavior problems and a whole host of other frustrations. A lot of people have pets that are super annoying to them. Mm. And the question is, why did you why did you get your dog or cat there? And you could just see they're like, ah. yeah. but they got it. They got an animal for the wrong reasons. And yes. they ended up recognizing later on that it may not have been right timing, right animal, right time space reality for that animal. So when you do create space and time, you're able to invest that time and energy in developing a relationship with a different species that can be incredibly fulfilling and meaningful because yeah. you've taken the time to develop it. We, we had an author on the, the podcast named uh, Luke Burgess. He wrote a book called Wanting about mimetic desires. And quite often we get pets because other people want pets. Mm -hmm. And so we see someone else who's really joyous with this pet. But then we realize like they live on a farm and I live in a studio apartment downtown yeah. Manhattan. And and I'm trying to mimic their experience or map yeah. it on to me, even though I live a completely different life. And I think the same can be said, not just for pets, but for children as well. Oh, I'm supposed to want children. I'm supposed to have children. I'm supposed to have a cat, supposed to have a dog. That's the American dream. In fact, you have to have four kids, two dogs, one cat, a picket fence, a Lexus, and an oversized house in the suburbs, right? <laughs> and so what we do is we're all of a sudden living everyone else's desire and it's making us miserable. But when you can step back and say, oh, no, no, no. Here's the reason why I actually want a dog. I want a cat. What is the most minimalist pet? A goldfish, maybe? <laughs> um, a hermit crab. Oh, yeah. A pet, a, a pet rock, yeah. perhaps. It's, it's true. true. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> but the, the question is, like, is a pet rock more appropriate for you than owning three German shepherds because you've been told that's what you're supposed to do? Certainly yeah. easier to take care of. Uh, I, oh, my gosh. 100%, right? And a lot of people... I mean, the, the biggest part of it is a lot of people go into it not knowing why, like you said, right? I just have to have the dog. I see everybody else get the dog. One of the most terrible, I mean, the, the number one way that people actually will even select a dog once they did, they think that they want a dog is by appearance, right? Mm. They're like, I want him because he looks cute. 
And so you have this perception of how that life is going to be with your pet. And like Dr. Karen Becker alluded to earlier, sometimes you see this terrible relationship happen where, yeah, your pet can be automatically, like can be annoying to you or like, boy, I shouldn't have gotten in this. I didn't know what I was doing. Especially now, you know, we were talking earlier about the puppy pandemic, how everybody wants a pet and then they get that pet and they're like, oh, geez, I don't know if I signed up for this, man. This is kind of like, this is kind of a terrible thing. Training is so critical right now. I think for every, like, especially like all these people in the United States right now that are getting pets and they just don't understand the benefits of that. There was a, a paper that came out that was talking about like the first six months are the most critical time to get training. If you can get, if you can get that down packed, you can go out, you can get some like uh, puppy training classes and so on and so forth. You can save yourself a life of misery and depression. Mm-hmm. Like literally you can cut anxiety down in pets by 50% according to the study. And we were just mm-hmm. talking about this right now wow. in the world, 70% of pets suffer from anxiety and depression. That's kind of like their owners. Yeah. And it seems like to me that they're like mirroring their yeah. owners because I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Hadza in Tanzania. They're a hunter gatherer tribe. There's only about 1500 of them left and they, and they have dogs. None of them own dogs, by yeah. the way. Just exist with them. Yes. yes. They coexist yes. and they've evolved together over many you know, tens of thousands of years. But the, the fascinating thing about their dogs is they <laughs> They don't have dominion over them necessarily, mm. but they're not anxious either because the Hadza aren't anxious. They don't exhibit anxiety and therefore none of their dogs exhibit anxiety. And so maybe our anxiety is contagious and we're passing it on to all of our pets. Emotional mm. contagion. There's the term right there. We we traveled all the way to Italy where we got to sit down with Italian scientists who came up with a study that was published in Nature and it like exploded all over the place, all over online. Maybe it was, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe 2018, the most popular study, the most read study in the world was when it came out that dogs will actually mirror our emotions. Mm -hmm. So we release these signals according to scientists that are called chemo signals on our skin. Right. And that's basically like a time capsule of how your day was. You come home, you know, your dog comes running up to the door, your cat comes up to you, they start sniffing you, they start smelling you. They're analyzing your entire day. So, like, if, if God forbid, Joshua and Ryan had a blowout fight and Mm. then they're over it and you guys are like, hey, we're done, you know, we just punched the shit out of each other for an hour, but we're good now, (laughs) everything is good. You go home, your dog can actually smell that. Okay. But so, all right. So he smells it. What does that mean? Big deal, right? In three seconds or less, your dog, if you were blown out cortisol all day, your dog will mimic that time that you had when you guys were in a blow up fight. Your dog will start releasing cortisol within seconds. He will become the stress that you had throughout that day. It's unbelievable. So like they mirror us in so many different ways. There was actually a long-term study uh, that came out of Sweden, Dr. Lena Roth, who we met up with. And she was talking about long-term cortisol release and what a stressful individual. So let's say somebody has a stressful life. They bring a brand new dog in there and you coexist with your dog over like, let's say 10 years. Mm -hmm. Researchers found that your dog will sync up to your cortisol levels. So if you are somebody who's continuously stressed out all the time, you're like, what's wrong with my dog? He's always so stressed out. He just, he's just always so anxious. It's the worst dog ever, right? Mm. Well, hey man, check yourself. (laughs) Maybe it's you that's the actual problem according to scientists. So yeah, it's, it's unbel- I mean, that's kind of the thing that we talk about a lot. Like if you, if you talk about like a lot of the diseases and issues that are happening with animals, it can sometimes come from the household itself that's super stressed out. 
I think also the conditions within the house. In fact, there's a question about this from our very own podcast, Sean. He um, he is a, a pet owner, but I don't know that it's by his own volition. <laughs> <laughs> but he's such a good husband and father that, you know, he, he makes it work. Yeah. <laughs> right. And maybe that it's, it, it's, it's also making a problem because he is such a good husband and father. Mm, yeah. What he might be doing is, well, also carrying a lot of the burden on his, of pet ownership on his own as well. Sean, you want to ask your question? Yeah. God, this is going to make me seem awful, huh? <laughs> so I'm, but I'm sure, I'm, sure I'm not the only one in this. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one in this situation as a, as a father, as a parent. Uh, for those of us that are not pet stewards, how do we appropriately address our loved ones who are pet stewards who constantly dump the burden of obligations and responsibilities of pet stewardship onto others? <laughs> that is, how do we respectfully remind them that pet stewardship is not just the pleasure of companionship for them to enjoy, but also the pain of daily maintenance for them to bear? Now, don't we see this all the time where, of course, the kid wants to bring a dog yeah. home because it's so cute and cuddly and I'll love it. I promise I'll clean up after it. I'll feed it. I'll do everything. Yeah. And then four days later, four weeks later, four months later, it's like, eh, it's a fixture in the house and mm. I do enjoy petting it, but I don't want to take care of it, really. Mm. And we don't think about all the resources it takes besides money. It takes time and attention and energy. Not to mention that a dog is, you basically have a two to three-year-old toddler the entire life. That's the phase that they are in. They have to be maintained in that two to three-year-old. I mean, they're very high maintenance their whole life. So while we may fall in love with the concept of becoming a best friend to an animal, we may not think through the time and energy and emotional commitment, financial resources that mm. it takes to give that animal the quality of life that it needs and deserves for its entire lifespan. Mm. So as a proactive wellness veterinarian, I have to say that pre-purchase or pre-adoption counseling is like the most important thing for marital relations, for household peace, mm. that adopting an animal cannot be a whim. It mm. has to be the same level and weight as adopting a child in the sense that you would plan about it. You would talk about it. Do you have the resources? Do you have the time available? Who exactly will be caring for the animal for the next 15 years? Who exactly will be walking the animal? And if you haven't seen the level of commitment and responsibility be role modeled in your spouse or your mate or your kids yet, then I would say don't get a German Shepherd puppy because you haven't yet had the relationship dynamic unfold with a child or a spouse enough for you to know, you know what? I feel like this could all end up on me. Mm. And if you're cool with that ending up on you, yeah. awesome. If you're not cool, then first and foremost, I would say preemptively before you get, before you bring life into your home and then have that life be stressful or a source of family conflict, You've got to make sure that the entire family recognizes the roles and responsibility of the weight of what it takes to responsibly care for that animal for the duration of its life. If you come into a relationship and your wife, your girlfriend has a puppy or your boyfriend has a dog or a cat, and now you are marrying into that, there again, you would want, before you decide to take that on, you would want to say, hey, listen, if we're going to spend our life together, are you going to continue caring for this animal? You know, whose responsibility will this be? Yeah. 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 We, we, we were talking about that before we started recording it. When I met my wife, uh, our daughter was one year old. She's my stepdaughter. I treat her like she's my daughter. But 
you have to be all the way in with that too. Like if yeah. you start dating someone, you're going to move in together, but I hate dogs. Yeah. Well, you're going to be miserable <laughs> or you're going to have to find a way to stop hating dogs, right? Yeah. That's right. And, so when I met Mariah, she had a cat and we were looking for an apartment to move in together. And let me tell you, when you have a cat, it cuts out like 50 to 60% of the available apartments. Yeah. So we, there were some yeah. like really nice places where I'm like, like, you know, good location, yada, 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 no pets. And so I, I go to Mariah, my, my now wife, I'm like, is there any way we could just like maybe find this cat another home or, and she's like, no, she's like, this is, this is the whole package. Yeah. And I, was I tried like, the same thing with Alec. Can we just, and you know, uh, but, but you know, it, it was a very, yeah. um, it wasn't something that I let, you know, bother me. It was like, she just kind of helped me see like, oh, this is part of the package. So I was like totally willing to accept that. And now I would, I would like never get rid of this cat. Like I, I am now bonded to this cat. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree. It's like, it's, it's, it's a whole package type deal for sure. But you have a weird sort of situation here and Alabama can, can testify to this because she will cat sit for you from time to time, Mm -hmm. but your cat Mac. Yes. I've known you for 30 years. I've seen Mac twice ever. <laughs> right. Um, oh, he is. You go to the house. He wants to be in yeah. the same room with you, but he doesn't want you to make eye contact or... Um... He's a barn cat. <laughs> he's like, he's, yeah, yeah, he's feral. He's like very standoffish. Um, In- independent. Independent. Yes. 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 And, and yes. he is... He, I mean, he's come from generations of barn cats. You bet. So there is like a little feral aspect, even when, like when he hears something, the way his ears perk up, yeah. I'm like, oh, that looks like a bobcat. Mm-hmm. Which like most cats, you know, like like uh, domesticated, they they're floppy and yeah. So he's tame, but I don't think he's so domesticated per se. But what I did, so yeah, to become Mac's friend, just like with any animal, you give it food. There you go. So Mac was uh, he was a pretty fit, young, strapping cat when uh, he first entered my life. Um, about two or three years into it, he gained a little bit of weight. Um, mainly cause I was like feeding him, uh, like we give him cat food, but then I would give him like just little bits of like lunch meat, ham or turkey, yeah. which yeah, are yeah. like, you know, he absolutely loves. So, um, it totally worked like him and I are now bonded, yep. but I have stopped since like feeding him lunch meat. Like, cause my, I mean, and, 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 and you, and te- <laughs> correct. You shouldn't be eating lunch meat. Either. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. So, so yeah, my, my wife, she was trying to explain to me, she's like, look, when you give and correct me if I'm wrong. Or if she's wrong, when you give a cat like a little piece of meat, like for them, it's actually like kind of a bigger thing because of, you know, how small they are. Um, and not to mention, yeah, the salt and the all the processed stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's such an awesome question. I mean, and and that's, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it too, right? Buying my love, right? I mean, that's how relationships start yeah, between yeah. boyfriends and girlfriends, right? Mm-hmm. Just start taking, you know, your girlfriend out to like beautiful restaurants <laughs> and and you bond over food. I mean, food is like one of the most incredible bonding experiences in the world. And yeah. I too am guilty of it. And especially in the pet space, you always want to, you feed with love, right? Especially coming from a Mediterranean family. My God, like, you know, we were always like, if you didn't finish your plates, you were beaten. So you were, and, <laughs> and you fed with love, right? You just always got to keep handing out treats and so on and so yeah. forth. You know, we were really, when, when especially when it comes to cats, right? Um, the type of food, I don't, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that bond, sharing food. I know sometimes you got trainers that say, you know, don't feed them at the table and they can develop terrible sort of, um, Begging. begging at the table mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So, I mean, look, you, putting that aside, um, it's kind of like the perception of food. Like, what am I sharing with my pet? And ultimately, there's things that I can pull out of my refrigerator to share with my pet that's mm-hmm. going to benefit me and benefit my pet overall. Um, lunch meats, 
delicious, right? In <laughs> Italy, they're, they're prepared them. differently in Italy than oh, they yes. are, right? He oh, like perks up so quick. Yes, when he sees a yes, lunch meat, he's right? like... <laughs> so it, I guess it's really going to depend on sort of like the lunch meat itself because of True. course we know that, you know, some of these meats can have like the sodium nitrate and, yeah. and the World Health Organization steps in and says, you know, eating that stuff could increase your rate of cancer and so mm. on and so forth. Mm. And because they're so small, like they're, the load of sodium nitrate that you would be taking in versus your cat would be taking, it would be exponential. Yeah. So... There'd be nothing wrong if I was sharing, let's say, an organic piece of like chicken, like mm. um, or like free range beef or something like that with my pet. So that's important because okay. one of the challenges that we know is that not only do pets do they mimic mimic us like when it comes to stresses and so on and so forth, but they also mimic our disease rates. So you know, I know that there's like an obesity rate right now globally, right? And, sure. and it doesn't matter where it is, and um. And don't quote me on the statistics in America, but I believe the last time I saw the human obesity rate was, you know, an overweight was like around 50%. It holds true with cats and dogs. They mirror us, right? Yeah. And when we eat, we typically, we feed our pets. And I know multiple studies have come out to say that overweight, uh, and not in anyone else, uh, not not a lot of people that are listening because I don't want to get offended with me, <laughs> but research shows that a lot of overweight pets come from overweight families, right? Because uh, it's that stop point, right? Yeah. And then what is the perception of food that we're seeing? Because to some people, sharing table scraps. This is kind of this is kind of what was our biggest hurdle in writing the book, that term table scraps, right? Mm -hmm. It was a term that was like developed in like 1890 where the invention of the first sort of ultra processed food where some genius named James Spratt from America was like, hey man, maybe I can make like pet food and I can make this very convenient, but how do I get people to stop feeding foods? Well, let's vilify the term table scraps because what yeah. on earth were people feeding before 1890 to their right. pets? Like what have pets Real been eating food. their whole lives? Yeah. Right. Real food, right? And, and we would use a pejorative like table scraps that's right. to ruin that real food. A hundred percent. And so, and that, you, that still holds true today. You walk into your veterinarian like, hey man, watch out on those table scraps, my friend, right? Because what is the definition of table scraps? It's never been clarified. Every home right. is different. Maybe, I, I see dudes sometimes giving their dogs like a little bit of beer and wine and stuff. I, I mean, it's Bad. it's like, what are you Bad. doing, right? Oh. Or getting cats to like, you know, eating nachos and, and stuff like that so oh there are those people like those <laughs> caveats like you know what i mean like those <laughs> right. caveats have to be there on yeah. what you're sharing what are those table scraps but if if the food is healthy if the food is what you would feed your children what you'd feed an infant a one-year-old and you'd feel comfortable with mm. i believe those are the type of foods that you should be sharing with your pet yeah. Well, and, and animals, most of them go through life never getting any fresh food. So mm. the fact that we can open up our fridge and share fresh foods with our dogs and cats, it's the it's the only time that they get foods that contain enzymes and that have not been adulterated and that and that still have nutrients and polyphenols and antioxidants included. Yeah. So sharing a, what I call biologically appropriate treats mm. with your cat is fantastic. But we also have to think about why and when we treat animals. Oftentimes, you know, we're working 10 hour days. We're stressed out. We haven't given the time and attention to our pets. So you know what we do? We 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 treat them yeah. instead of spending time with them. Mm. Instead of being present and Ooh. focusing it's like a on them. To yeah, it's like here, just eat, yeah. eat, eat. You just keep having My a snack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So snacks, emotional, emotional bonding can't be done with just overfeeding your pet. We yeah. end up with a lot of fat diabetic cats and we mm. end up with a lot of kitties with kitty disease and organ disease. And we we don't necessarily, we're not nourishing them the way nature intended. So kitties and dogs actually don't have a carbohydrate requirement. They don't need right. any carbs to be healthy. Oh, right. wow. And yet the In average fact, bag cats of- don't. 
don't eat plants at all and unless they're in like strange oh. starvation situation and even yeah. then they, they don't have the digestive tract to really yeah you'll, they'll yeah. nibble grasses of course yeah. and they rely on getting the plant material inside of their praise gi tract that's passed up the food chain those pre-digested prebiotic fibers that come from their praise gi tract like mm-hmm. if you really had a barn cat barn kitties hunt mice regularly and they eat the whole darn mouse right. you know they're not cooking it they're not removing the bone and the skin they're eating the whole <laughs> mouse and oh, that's man. they're eating the mouse microbiome. They're eating all the mouse organs. They're eating everything. And that fresh whole live package meal contains everything that nature intended for him to be thriving in, in, in a metabolic machinery state that allows him to live a long, healthy life. The problem is cat food doesn't have those same macronutrients, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the major ingredients in cat food. In fact, a lot of them, the first ingredient is cornmeal. And there's yeah. just something about that where I'm like, that doesn't feel right. No. right. No. It's cost, right? I mean, yeah. efficiency, where are you going to get your protein from, right? I mean, these, it, it's interesting when we, um, one of the things that we had to heavily research was it's easy to say to somebody, hey, go out and buy this organic whole food meal and prepare it for your cat, prepare mm-hmm. it for your dog, and they'll live a very long time. Ultimately, a lot of people don't eat that way, right? It's very difficult for people. I mean, Mm -hmm. convenience and and cost is an issue. When you look at the United States, the average spend is so much lower than any other country in the world, which which was shocking to me, right? In Canada, for instance, the typical pet parent actually spends on their dog close to about $100 a month. Um, I don't have any data on cats, but I do have U.S. cat data. Nothing came out in Canada yet on cats. But to compare that to a dog in the United States, mm-hmm. it's $22. Oh, wow. wow. What on earth can you buy for yeah. $22 to feed like a 50-pound dog? But yeah. if you walk into like your your big box stores here that you guys have, they like 30, ba- 30 pounds, 30 pounds mm-hmm. of food for $17. It's mostly soy, yeah. mostly corn. Corn, it's wheat, rice. Yeah. 100%. It lacks all the micronutrients of meat, especially raw meat uh, that that our pets crave. You know, I've seen studies about cats where you, it, who are diseased cats where you start feeding them raw meat in particular and you see everything changes. The organ disease changes, the the coat changes, the, the their cognition changes. All of these changes within our pets just by feeding them one simple thing where, and, yeah. and don't, don't even get me started on like organ meats and stuff where mm. as you said if they're eating the mouse they're eating and we hate to think about it as humans because we don't I mean very few of us eat organ meats the most healthy of yeah. us tend yeah. to but um, but with our pets like we just think here I'm going to I'm going to give you the $1 worth of food and it will keep your cat or dog alive today, but it won't help them thrive and won't keep them alive for a long period of time. And it won't ease their suffering. In fact, it will cause some long-term suffering. And so in the book, I know you do talk about what to feed pets, but let's talk about simply what is, what, what does it make sense to feed our cats and dogs? Yeah. What do I feed my cat? I, real quick story. I, tr- I was telling a friend, I have a friend who's a pet trainer. I was telling her how I felt bad that we just fed him crunchies all the yes. time. That's what we call yes. his cat food. Yeah. And it's like, he gets excited over him. I'm like, man, like as a, as a human being, like we need yeah. a little variety. I feel yeah. bad that like he just gets excited about these crunchies. So we got him raw, like some yes. raw cat food. Yeah. Didn't he won't eat it. Wouldn't Didn't touch, touch it. it. And my friend was like, of yeah. course he's not going to touch it. You've been yeah. feeding him McDonald's. Yeah. And that's why he gets excited about it. So yeah, what do I feed my cat? So listen, <laughs> this is such a crazy story. I got I got I just got, I gotta, let me hit on that. And, and Karen, you can jump on that. It's, it's really interesting when you look at sort of the pet food industry as a whole, okay? When you take these type of foods, so let's say that I take a little bit of meat, 
little bit of corn, little bit of this, little bit of that. Like, look at the back of a bag of pet food, right? And then I force it all into like this extruder. I got to pulverize it into powder, then into Play-Doh. And then I, it comes out of pellets and I put it into a bowl. Nobody's eating that. Mm. No. First of all, when it comes out, it's coming out usually gray, right? Nine times Oof. out of 10, it's coming out in a color that you don't really love. So when you turn around the back of a pack, package of pet food, you'll see red dye number 40, yellow uh. dye number five, all of these colors, because pet food is not being sold for pets. Pets have no idea what the colors are. It's <laughs> you they're yeah. selling it to. Ah, uh, yes. The sexy term in the pet space is called humanization. How am I going to get Ryan and Joshua to buy the food? Well, I got to make it look like food in the first place. So I'll put a piece of broccoli on the front of the cover of the uh, package. Mm. You open up the bag. Which dogs see, don't want anyway. Which dogs right. don't want anyway. You see green pellets in there. You're like, oh, I found the broccoli. It's right there on the front of the package. Yeah. I'll put like a seared steak and then I'll dye everything red. And you're like, oh, there's the, there, there's the steak, so on and so forth. Okay. Mm. When you put that down, typically all pet food is kind of created the same and it all comes out the same sort of scent. Animals won't touch it. For a million dollars, they won't go near it. This is where the pet food industry has to work with the chemical industry, right? Yeah. So the American Chemical Society, those guys sit down and they're like, okay, we need to create scents that's going to like entice the animal to eat this because nobody's going to eat this. Wow. So they start putting chemicals like cadaverin and putrescine, which smell like a dead animal, like a dead mouse. Mm. Cat comes up, smells it. Holy smokes. This is a fresh kill. I'm in. Cat starts eating it. He's all over it. You go out, you buy fresh food, you buy raw food, you take it out of the package, which doesn't have any cadaver and putrescine on it. Yeah. You put it in the bowl, cat walks up and smells it. And he's like, what the yeah. heck? That does not smell fresh. Right. That was ground up maybe <laughs> a month ago somewhere in Michigan and packaged in a freezer mm. in a sausage and you brought that. I'm out. I'm not eating it. Yeah. These chemicals become so enticing. Companies will spend millions, if not billions to patent chemical scents to capture that cat, they call it the forever kitty. Oh so God. trying to switch onto a brand would be virtually impossible for you, right? But they yeah. do that intentionally, right? If they know that your kitty, you may be wise enough to recognize I shouldn't be feeding a little brown crunchy ball from birth till death, but your cat is addicted. So even though you as the cat dad wants to get your kitty off yeah. of ultra processed food, your cat's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm an addict. I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah. You know, I, I want nothing to do with switching my diet. Yeah. So you actually have to end up with with relying on trickery. Trickery meaning okay. you just as if your kid only ate junk food up until 10 and then you're like, hey, we're going to switch to fresher foods or to a salad. Kids don't even recognize it as food. They're just addicted to ultra processed snack foods. Yeah. If you try and get your kids on whole foods, carrots and celery and blueberries, a lot of kids that have never had fresh food, they don't even appreciate the taste of fresh food. They don't like it. They say, mom, I don't like it. Dad, it doesn't taste good. I don't want to eat this. Mm -hmm. So you end up having to, first of all, if you get a young animal, getting animals onto species appropriate, biologically correct food mm -hmm. is really easy because they've not had their taste buds tainted. Mm -hmm. So the addiction isn't allowed to start. So if you do have a young animal, getting them off of ultra processed foods early, it would be my big recommendation. Okay. I just recently weaned two uh, kitties that I rescued onto fresh food. It took about six months and you have to do literally one person. So first step is going from dry to canned food and then from canned food to I wanted to feed my kitties fresh food, raw food. Mm -hmm. But you don't go from dry food to raw food. You have to go from dry food to soggy dry food and then from soggy dry food to canned food because it's the same consistency and then from canned food to fresh food. But oh. it's just literally 1% new food, 99% old food, wait a day or two, watch their poop. And then, you know, 
know, it's 5% new food, 95% old food. Mm. Watch their, you know, and you slowly titrate. Okay. Slow, like literally, it because all you got to do is feed the cat. Your cat's got to eat every day. You got nothing but time. It may take you a year to get your kitty off of crunchies mm-hmm. and onto fresh living whole bio- biologically appropriate meat-based food. Yeah. But you got nothing but time. And so let's just start the slow weaning process okay. of increasing a little bit of fresh food. And you just mix it in so well to the crunchies that your kitties will take a bite and be like, hmm, something tastes different, but I'm still going to eat it. It's not different enough for me to reject the food. If you were to just offer fresh whole new food to your cat, mm-hmm. he will never eat it because he, he's addicted to his old food. And that's yeah. exactly where the manufacturer wants you to be. Right. Yikes. To break an addiction, you can't just say please stop the addiction it doesn't work for any mammal <laughs> yeah. you, you mm-hmm. have to go through a, oh. you know you have to go through a process of weaning him off of his addictive food yeah and it's slow and consistent but you've got nothing but time and your kitty's metabolic machinery as he ages the best thing you can do is get a higher moisture kitties need a lot of moisture in their diet to mm. prevent kidney disease mm. they need a lot of fresh unadulterated protein for healthy biologic function and they don't need any carbohydrates so we'll slowly try and mix in first step canned food mm-hmm. and then once he's on canned food going from canned to raw food is really easy okay but, so just to reiterate uh, I take the dry food I'll mix a little bit of canned food with yep. it and I actually I start by softening dry food with some bone broth which means uh. just like eating potato chips they're just addictive soggy soggy crunchies, yeah. a little bit of moist. If you had a little bit of bone broth to that dry kibble, okay. he'll eat it, but he's okay. like, oh man, you put something on it, but he'll still eat it. Okay. <laughs> Once you make the the crunchies a little bit softer and softer yet again with more and more bone broth, yeah. then pretty soon he's eating s- soggy kibble, in which case you can add a half a teaspoon of canned food, mix it in real well. Then you add a teaspoon of can and take a teaspoon of crunchies out. Then you do two teaspoons of canned food, remove two teaspoons of crunchies, and okay. pretty soon he's eating canned food. And then canned food to raw food's easy, but Right. And what you can't do is leave the crunchies down 24-7. The all-you-can-eat mm. buffet is not reality for most mammals. We oh. all get fat when we eat all we want all day, That's every day. Point. So you got to pick the food up. Yeah. You have to create pockets of eating windows. Much like if he was really a barn kitty in a barn, he wouldn't be hunting. He wouldn't be ca- catching a mouse every 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, there would wouldn't be dead mice all over yeah. the place. Yeah. Right? He would hunt and then digest. Yes. You know, he so they feast and then feast. And, and then fast and feast and fast okay. and feast and fast. So you got to pick the food up. I thought you were going to uh, try and talk me into getting live mice and letting them loose in the house. We have people that <laughs> do that. That's the final stage. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we have people that, uh, that, that, they keep, that. Yeah. Keep, keep their mice populations down in their home because they have a kitty. Wow, but, yeah. Yeah. Wild, but to yeah. go like to the ultimate question, so like what do you eat, right? Uh-huh. That, so the way that we were able to break it down in the book is basically think of it as yourself, right? Whole food nutrition, meaning I'm going to get all of my nutrients from whole food. I'll get my vitamins, my minerals, and so on and so forth. When you flip around the back of a package of pet food, so if you want to work yourself from good, better to best, let's just say, Mm -hmm. right? The less synthetics that you see on the back of the food, that means less heat has been applied to that food, meaning there's more whole food nutrients in that package. And that's how cost starts to go up. So for a lot of pet parents that go out there, they may look at a bag of food and you see it I don't know, $20. And then you'll look into a frozen section. You'll see something for $80. You're like, oh my gosh, why am I paying so much money here? We'll turn around the bag. You'll see 25 ingredients on like a whole food component. And you'll see 56 to like 60 ingredients on the back of like a dry food component. Because mm. it's logical, just like human food. If I was to take a, any type of vegetable and I was to freeze it, I would lose some of my nutrition. I was to dehydrate it, I would lose a little bit more nutrition. I was to cook it, fry it, barbecue it, 
run it through an extruder. It's almost, there's almost nothing left in it. Yeah. I have to resort to a white bag of synthetics that I can pour back onto it and bring it back to life synthetically. Mm. So when we wanted to figure out, okay, man, how are we gonna, how are we gonna divulge this? Where are we gonna get science? It's so fascinating to see guys. Purdue University wanted to figure out just how important fresh food was. So they took a bowl of kibble, the little crunchies that you're talking about, three times a week. That's all they did. They added a little bit of green vegetables to it. Go to your refrigerator. You know, you want to talk about minimalism. When you cut vegetables, I mean, I don't, hopefully I can classify that as minimalism. When you mm. cut vegetables, the tops of carrots, as Dr. Becker says, the or the bottom of like celery that you're not going to eat, yeah. rather than pitching it or firebombing, recycling it, put it into a freezer bag, take a tablespoon out, three times a week, put it on top of their crunchies. According to Purdue University, when it came to Scottish Terriers who were prone to bladder cancer, there was a 90% reduction in the possibility of developing bladder cancer by just adding something fresh to the bowl. Those we, damn table scraps. Those damn yeah. table <laughs> scraps could reduce the incidence of bladder cancer by 90%. It's, wow. it, it's free food, yeah. right? You're going to throw it out. A lot of people just throw out yeah. the, the dented and ding blueberries. Yeah. Those actually are where the polyphenols are. So fruits and veggies, if you're going to cut a spot out of your apple, mm -hmm. give it to your dog. Oh, wow. So as you are preparing your foods, using fresh foods as treats for the animals in your home, it's the best way to recycle mm -hmm. those nutrients and provide living, you know, living enzymes, polyphenols, enzymes, everything that animals are missing from ultra processed foods, mm. giving them bites throughout the day of foods that we would be cutting out and disposing of. It's yeah. such a beautiful way to improve the nutritional status of our animals. Yeah, that's interesting. I was with a friend and we were eating carrots and got to the end of it. And I like tossed mine and he ate his. Yes. And I was like, dude. Yeah, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he was like, what? It's still like food. And it's funny because he's right. Like, I don't, it's just, there's something psychological about it. You're yeah. like, oh, that texture, that color, whatever it is. But like now, um, I like before I throw out the bottom of a celery or a carrot, yeah. like I'm like, maybe this is actually good for me. And it it doesn't taste that much different from the rest of the. Yeah. Yeah. It like, depends on what it is. You don't want to eat like well, yeah, the exterior of a pineapple or. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I think it depends. I, yeah, I want to yeah. make a pivot here because Ryan and I, we've been out on tour. We just uh, finished up this uh, this 20 city tour for our most recent book called Love People Use Things. And in there, I've been, we've been going around doing these readings and there's a section that I read from. There's this couple in the Midwest, uh, Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall, and they were living the American dream. They had four kids. They had two dogs and a cat. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they started simplifying their lives after um, being exposed to minimalism online. And as they started simplifying, one of the things they realized is not only were they sort of hoarders, we're all at least stage one hoarders yeah. in the Western world. You know, the people we see on TV are stage five hoarders, but we're stage one or two, most of us. But most of our pets are also stage one, two, stage mm -hmm. three hoarders. And... We've inflicted that on them. You go mm. back to the Hadza and the Hadza videos, they, they don't have a bunch of toys and they don't have anything. Mm. And yet they seem much more joyous and content than our pets who we seem to be placating with, well, here, I'll just get you a toy. I'm trying to bring pleasure to you. Yeah. And instead of developing the relationship together, let me just get you this thing. Now we do this with humans as well, but it's odd that, now, even our dogs are yeah. hoarders. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure you see this in your practice. I'm, I'm sure you, you've seen a lot of people where we're simply trying to supplement our relationship with stuff. But do the dogs really become dependent on those things? And is it okay to let go of those things? Will it cause some sort of trauma in your dog's life? 
most well-loved dogs in the U.S., have a multitude of different color dog beds, textured dog beds. They have spring collars. They have Easter collars. They have a Christmas collar. They have a Christmas, several Christmas sweaters, <laughs> maybe certain different shoes. Mm. You know, they have winter booties and then they have waterproof booties. Oh. We, I have clients who have full wardrobes for their animals. Wow. At th- Tempur-Pedic therapeutic yeah. beds for what? their dogs. Wow. All different, different doodads for different seasons, different embellishments. There are a lot of, I don't want to say jewelry, but a lot of clothes and outfits that you can buy yeah. for your animals. Even toys. And yet, so many people have giant trunks, hundreds of dogs' toys, and their dogs don't play with any toys. Or they have one favorite Toy. And it's yeah. all destroyed, but they keep going back to the to same that toy. one toy. And yet there's thousands of dollars being spent on one more toy that goes in the toy box that is never used or, or played with. There again, we work long hours. Many of us have guilt about our dogs being in crates for 10 hours a day. We have guilt that we're not exercising them as much as they need to. We have guilt that when we do exercise them, we take them around the block for their 10-minute walk a day, and that's their exercise So because we are not necessarily moving our dog, we're not nourishing their bodies the way that nature intended. We're not allowing them to move their bodies or use their brains or make independent decisions because, in essence, we hold animals captive in our homes. And sometimes they're gilded, beautiful, multi-million dollar mansions that these animals are in. They, They don't leave. They don't get the outdoor time. They're not grounded. They don't get to breathe fresh air and run through the grass and move their bodies in a way. They just have a lot of really expensive Gucci dog beds Mm. that is not making up for the lack of the relationship, lack of appropriate food or lack of appropriate exercise that they're getting or that they're not getting. And owners are buying more things to offset that. Mm. And it's certainly not making dogs any happier or healthier. And Mm -hmm. in fact, it's just yet again, distracting mom and dad from Mm -hmm. focusing on what really matters. Dogs just want to spend time with you. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they just they, they just want to be in relationship with us. You're going to have every us. Instagram content dog mom outside with a machine gun waiting for you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to make fun of but my pet yeah. I mean, You know what's yeah. crazy about it though? If you, if you do think about it though, you could like, here, I'm your, I'm your great example. First time pet parent. I got to get I got to get jackets for my dog. So mm. I went running out buying all of these different, like you say, different color jackets. I had my German shepherd, Sammy. She's like, are you really going to put this on me? Like I could see, <laughs> I could see the misery. Like how many people post all over social media, like their dogs and outfits and the dog, like if you know anything about a dog's expression, like help me. <laughs> yes. I really need to be in this, right? It's a hostage video. It's, it's crazy. Like it I would and, buy. And just their faces. How about toys? Like I would line up every single awesome toy. I like literally, I'd line them up all over the ground and my dog would go outside and grab a stick and and then bring the stick in the yes. house and that'd be my dog's favorite toy. My dog would just play with the stick. I'm like, oh my God, I just spent an X amount of dollars on uh-huh. all of these toys. You don't, you want the stick? You don't want with the toy? Mm. It's again, you know, I, I said this earlier, the key term in the pet industry is what's called humanization. It's not selling the toy to your dog. It's selling the dog to you. Mm. The toy, yeah. It's it's selling the cat toy to you, like yeah. it, it's it's meant to entice you to be like, oh, my dog's gonna live this. And hoarding does become a huge situation. I mean, I you know I go, I'm guilty of it, man. I go into my house and then all of a sudden I've got this toy box of untouched toys that are just piled up there in the corner, and that's kind of where I had that epiphany. I remember watching you guys' documentaries. Like I gotta be a better person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for your welcome. I don't know which. I suck so much. 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I went up and I started to take some of the toys and I started to um, donate those toys to rescues, to shelters. I don't have to have five dog beds. My dog won't even sleep on the, yeah, like if I got they're five on the bed. beds. They're on your bed. They're on my bed, yeah. right? Or yeah. they're on, on the, the couch. Mat. They'll find yeah. the cold area on the tile. I live up in Canada. They want to sleep on the tile. They don't even want to sleep on the beds. Oh, wow. It was just for me. Oh, I have to have a bed in this room and I have to have a bed in that room because what happens if Sam goes from this room to that room? <laughs> I want her to be comfortable. And I yeah. started lining these, but it was me that was doing it. I will say this one thing, and this is like trying not to ball my eyes open, but because of you guys, you know, I started to watch, when I started to watch kind of the documentaries on Netflix and stuff like that, and just talking about minimalism and so on and so forth. Like um, when my dog Sammy passed away, she had ALS and she had braces and she had a wheelchair. I didn't want to give those up. Mm. I didn't need them. Wow. They were just in my garage, right? Yeah. I had a paraplegic dog who, you know, and, and ALS is a bastard of a disease, but I would look at them every wow. day and I would see them. And I was like, what kind of person would I be if I, if I got rid of those? I can't. Like those are her. But do I really want to remember her also in that wheelchair, or do I remember when it was at her best? So, of course, after you know watching the kick-ass documentaries you guys put out, I turned around, I donated the wheelchair, I donated the braces, mm. and then the owner sent me a picture of their paraplegic dog in her wheelchair. Yeah. And let me tell you, man, oh, man, what a life-changing, you know, it was... For me, it was materialistic. It was like I had to have the wheelchair to have her. But then to see another dog thriving in that wheelchair, and it wasn't, it's the memory that I had to have. It wasn't the wheelchair that I needed. So oh, that's thanks beautiful. to you guys, man. It's, wow. Oh, that's great. The, the, um, the, I really resonate with the, you know, what we're trying to do is you know, humanize the dogs in a way, or humanize the process, humanize whatever it is. And it reminds me, we, we often hear people say that, pets look like their owner and <laughs> and there there's some truth to that sometimes yes. you'll be able yes. to like runyon canyon you're like yeah. but i remember this one i was this was a summer of 2010 i was walking through brooklyn and there was a dog wearing a leather jacket sunglass ray-ban sunglasses smoking a cigarette an actual lit cigarette <laughs> walking down the street with his owner who was dressed exactly the same I way. <laughs> and what a metaphor for what we're doing. Like that's the extreme of what we're doing to our dogs. But like that is also a metaphor of what we're doing to all of our pets. We're, mm. we're subjecting them to the same sort of suffering and hoarding mm. is one way that we can subject them to suffering. Here, I'm going to give you all of these things to make you happy because as a human, I think all of these things are also going to make me happy. And of course, for a pet, you're so simple. The more stuff I get you, the more joyous you're going to be mm. not knowing that we're actually creating a barrier between us and the animals that we love. Yeah. This kind of comes back to you know that term when we were trying to break down this book, like how could we do this if you had just had zero money, right? To go back, if I was to buy my dog a whole bunch of toys, like as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to, most people have the nine to five jobs, dogs in the kennel, you come home, I bought you a present. Sometimes it's guilt. I mean, there's a study that just came out called pet guilt. Like you're at home, you know your dog is in the kennel or your cat's by himself. You've got this guilt. So you turn around, you head to the nearest pet shop, you buy a toy for your animal, mm. you come back to help relieve that guilt. We wanted to be able to show people that it's not the materials, it's not the item. You can go and buy 50 tennis balls and you know throw a tennis ball for your dog. Sure, that's great exercise, but taking your dog just out to the woods, walking your dog through the woods, grounding, getting the bacteria, what they call fusobacteria from the soil, from the woods, the environment, getting that onto your dog, the benefits, how it can reduce allergies. Sometimes those 
means so much more to the dog, the scent, the snafari. Dogs don't have choices, right? Mm. You talked about that. Well, and when we think about walking the dog around the block, which is what most dogs get for their daily exercise, mm. we don't even allow our dogs to stop. Like when they want to smell, if you think about it, dogs have this amazing sense of smell. It's how they take in their environment. It's how they place themselves in the environment. It's how they know where they're going and where they've been and who else has been there. Mm. Allowing our dogs time to actually sniff and to smell, and if they want to smell a, a light post for five minutes, how often do we stop and allow them to just have their five minutes of... Mm. No, we drag we them. Dra- yeah. Yank. Come on. Hurry Come on. on. You got going. five minutes. Hurry yeah. up and poop. Poop. Yeah. And, and the grounding thing is such a great... Ryan's grounding right now. He's standing on a grounding mat. Yeah. And um, because not only can you allow your pets to ground. But if you're out there in the woods, you can take your shoes off and you yourself can ground and Mm. talk about adding some calm to a Mm. stressful life. Grounding is one of the best ways to reconnect with the earth that we've accidentally disconnected ourselves from. And now we're even putting shoes on our pets, which is another way to disconnect them from nature. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like the only appropriate time to put shoes on a pet is like maybe when it's like hot asphalt or something because like pets can get like some, they can get their feet burnt. But that's because that asphalt has disconnected them from yes. <laughs> from yep. nature. Right. Yeah. The yeah. asphalt has, you know, is is oil based. Right. And so it is not possible to ground there. And even right. on concrete, you can ground a little bit on concrete if it's conductive, but it's not it's not as grounding as simply walking on the dirt right next to that sidewalk. Mm. Well in recent and we have research on that. So there's there's data to show like the longest lived dogs that we went out to search for all came from farms. Mm-hmm. They oh, were wow. all had free roaming lives. Yes. They were able to in fact they slept on the ground right like at nights they chose to sleep on the ground rather than go inside the house and sleep on a dog bed oh, wow. the owners had like we had beds in the house but the dogs wanted to go outside and, and connect with the earth right there's data to also show that city dogs dogs that live on like on the ninth floor of an apartment building let's say um those dogs tend to suffer more with allergies depression anxiety versus the dogs that are out in the woods in nature moving connecting with the microbiome of the earth yes and so mm. now it's not to say that those of us stuck in cities can't be effective guardians, Mm -hmm. but we have to make it our focus. We have to make it our intention to want to provide a more natural opportunity for our dogs to get out into the a more natural environment and mm-hmm. move their bodies at a at a, you know an unsprayed grassy area or take yes. them to the woods. So it comes down to we totally can give city dogs a beautiful life, but it comes down to us making it a point mm-hmm. that we're going to offer these experiences on a consistent basis to intentionally help our dogs live a really fulfilled life. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Alabama, we got some surprise questions from our patrons here. Let's start with Lydia. What do we do if we think someone might be an animal hoarder? So Ah. this is something that does come up. And this is a sign. This is like stage five hoarding where, you know, we Ryan and I gave a, a TEDx talk a few years ago and and we talked uh, you know one of the things I joked about my mom had a lot of stuff and and she wasn't like a hoarder in the stage five hoarder sense and my joke was always there were no dead cats in her freezer yeah. but the yeah. truth is that like sometimes people they start and I don't understand the psychology behind it completely but I I do understand the inability to let go because we all have struggled to let go of something right and with a dead cat it's like i can't accept the fact that this cat or dog has died so that's one way to be an animal hoarder is by keeping dead carcasses or freezing them and 
Um, the the other way is simply you know, we see it all the time where someone collects pets and they get more and more yeah. and more pets and and one dog doesn't do it so now it's five dogs or you see that we were ryan and i grew up there was uh the chicken lady oh yeah who collected cats dogs and chickens, and chickens. at her home yeah and and it manifests in different ways but part of that has something to do with mental illness and and, and there's a loneliness there but there's I don't know if there's like a tipping point. It's hard to say, well, you're an animal hoarder because you have six dogs, or maybe you live on a farm, yeah. right? Maybe it makes a whole lot of sense there. Well, and for a lot of people, their their mindset is this animal, I found, you know, I found a litter of, of kittens and instead of bringing them home and making sure that they're that they're okay and then placing them, they bring them home and then they love them and then they don't want to get rid of them. And then mm. they find then they find another animal or such an animal was slated to be euthanized at the pound. So they wanted to bring that home. And their defense is I had to save this animal's life, which yeah. in, in most of the situations they did save the animal's life. Yes. But they have not been able to go on and provide appropriate medical care. They're not able to meet the animal's physical and emotional needs. So they end up collecting animals, rescuing them, mm. but they're unable to provide for them emotionally and physically. And so if you believe that you, if you have a neighbor that has, you know, 27 cats in a one-bedroom apartment, yeah. I have had I have seen stories where people just fill up their bathtub with cat litter. Whoa. And just, you know, 30 cats turn into 35 cats, turn into 40 cats, turn into 45 cats. And what the what they say is if I didn't care for them, no one would all of these animals would be dead. However, are those animals receiving medical care and are they being are they being cared for appropriately? Usually in a in a true hoarding situation, they are not. In which case, if you believe that animals are suffering, not being cared for physically. It, uh, appropriately, you need to call your local animal control, ASPCA. You need to contact your local humane society and and explain what you believe is going on. It can be very difficult because yeah. in addition to mental illness, there are people with beautiful hearts who just have a compulsion to save everything that they find. Yes. But instead of then placing it in an appropriate house with people that have time, energy, and resources to correctly care for the animal, they just keep them and maybe they don't have the resources to appropriately care for them and they just start collecting animals like some people collect rocks or plants. Mm -hmm. The problem is these are lives that then end up being neglected in many situations. Mm -hmm. And so uh, co contacting uh, local authorities. Yeah, and abuse has a lot to do with it too. I mean, there was a paper, a study paper that came out that just talked about a lot of people that that have been abused or sexually abused flock to pets, right? Because it's they want to be closer to pets than they do people. It's also one of kind of the one of the topic categories in the high suicide rate in veterinarians who have the highest suicide rate in the entire world. Veterinarians. Oh wow! And God. what they yeah. found was in one of the one of the parts to the paper was that veterinarians, because they were felt more connected they did to animals than people, right? They didn't spend time to talk about their emotions a lot. They they just kind of wanted they held everything inside, and you know. Mental, like like depression, anxiety, this really does play a massive role. I, I won't jump into the suicide uh, part of it too long. I'll, let me just sidetrack back to the abuse part of it. Some people feel better when they fill their household with animals. Some people feel better when they, as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to, I saved his life, I saved his life, I saved his life, I saved... And where does that stop, right? Yeah. There's no end point there. No. That term crazy cat lady, I mean, came from, you know, people that were hoarding 
mm-hmm. animals, right? Yeah. With great intentions too. Yeah, of course. So, yes. of course. So I, I like I like what you're talking about here. It becomes a problem when you no longer have the resources to actually care for these animals. So by that definition, you could have one pet and be a pet hoarder yeah. well, because you don't have, yes. you, oh, you know what? I, I I thought it'd be great for me to own a dog. That's what I'm supposed to do. It's part of my American dream. Yeah. And now I own it, but I just placate it. I throw some food out. There's a perpetual buffet of food pellets and there are 400 toys strewn throughout the house, six beds. But I don't have a relationship with that pet. Well, in a way, you're kind of pet hoarding. Or you could have six dogs and you live on a farm and they're all well fed and well taken care of. And you're not hoarding those pets at all. Maybe you got some cats over there and, you know, you've got a pond full of fish. Are they pets? I don't know. But like maybe you're caring for them in some way. Right. And you can do that if you have the resources, the time, the attention, the energy, the money that it costs to take care of these animals, the medical care that you need to give to, to animals as well. Well, if you have the resources for that, then you're not hoarding. But if you don't, then even one or two pets might be too many. Yeah. We have a question here from Bruna. What's the best way to rehome your pet when you can no longer care for them? Oh, this one hits home because I Ooh. had a, um, I was married. I got married at like 18 years old, 19 years old. Um, smartest decision I ever made. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I'd recommend everyone get married <laughs> yeah. at 18 and unmarried right. at 21. You, you know everything at 18. Exactly. You knew it all. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Oh, Isn't it funny? I didn't know way much more at 18 than I know. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> true. So uh, uh, my then wife and I, we got a uh, a dog. It was half Malamute, half Timberwolf. And it was like oh, the gosh. best, yeah. most awesome dog. Well, then we split up. And I had to move in with my buddy who already had a dog in like this two bedroom, one and a half bath, really small place. And um, I, I just I just got to a point where I was like, oh, I have to like find a home for this dog. So uh, I was lucky enough. I somehow came across this program where I know this sounds really weird, but the prison, the local prison had this uh, program for like really well-behaved inmates who were like in there for, you know, they were lifers essentially. And they were allowed to have like a certain animal. And I was able to like find him a home with this inmate who um, I imagine probably loved him more than I loved him because he, you know, he's in prison. So an animal to him is everything. And uh, yeah, it was really amazing to be able to find a home for him. But I will say that like it, it took a lot of work and it was hard to find a home for this dog. And I didn't want to just give it up to a, to a shelter because right. yeah, shelters kind of lead to um, potentially being put down and things like that. So yeah. Wh- so what, what would be your advice? Cause not everyone can find an inmate to give their animal uh, to. 100%, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this kind of, this kind of comes back to like the, in my mind to the, like the pet parent, the pet owner, or the guy that just kind of sees a dog, like a dog. We joke around about this all the time. Like typically dudes, you know, you talk to a lot of guys, eh, it's a dog. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a pain in the ass. Um, I know in the female space, like most like, well-researched dog moms or even the dog space itself, it's like 90% female driven, right? Really? My mom, God love her, Mediterranean woman, she fed me. My dad, my dad, blue-collared man, busted his butt, put food on the table, but he never fed me. He never did those things that my mother, my, like moms are awesome. They got that nurturing effect. Females are awesome. Let's just say that. They're nurturers, right? Typically in the pet space, you never, like a, a man will come in to buy like dog food and he'll be like, yeah, the blue bag. I don't know. My wife buys it. It's got something <laughs> organic in it, whatever it is. Just sort of give it to me, right? Um, this kind of goes back on how you perceive the pet. I know I've I've known pet parents 
who will do a lot of research, man. When they're in a situation where they've got to get rid of the dog, let's say something financially happens, mm. they lose their job during the pandemic, they will really diligently go out, try to find family, try to find a friend. That's usually the first aspect that people will yeah, go down right. rather than going to a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's there's fosters, there's, you know, where somebody maybe will foster the pet. It really depends on the geographical location of somebody. You have those people that do terrible things that will just tie the dog on the side of the highway and be like, please, they think it's a good idea. Maybe somebody will drive by and the best pet parent will find that dog that's there. Oof. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. be that person, right? Yeah. Or put it in a box and walk up to the SPCA and like tape the box up and just leave it there. And it's like, okay, it's your problem, not my problem. We don't have control over those type of individuals or how their minds work, right? But typically, um, and I know you're going to be full of awesome ideas, but typically, um, this is where well-researched pet parents will take the time to find the right household, mm-hmm. to find the right person, go to a, like a foster. There's a lot of no-kill shelters also that are out there that can help. And there's a lot of programs and there's a lot of places online that have databases where you can download an app now. You can put your dog, you can put the situation, and you in turn can interview all these people mm-hmm. that come through applications. And I agree with all of that. And I think that that's the, that's the most important point is that you want to... Know the next home where your dog or cat is going to be in. What you what you cannot do is put free to good home in your local paper because all sorts of people will take animals for all sorts of bad reasons, like yes. bait dogs for you know for dog fighting rings and Aww. there's a lot of gross situations. So free to good home is something that we don't ever do, mm. but there are all sorts of resources now online, local humane societies, local rescue organizations, local foster programs for if you find yourself suddenly having to rehome your animal, you will take the time and energy needed to find a, a qualified facility, rescue, or foster organization, or you will you will end up meeting friends and family that would be able to home the animal that you could then go back and check on. But the key is no free to good home in paper or giving it to complete straight, giving your animal to complete strangers mm. because you just don't know what the end result is going to be. Mm. And I would rather those animals go to shelters and risk humane euthanasia, which is awful, but at least pain-free and not torturous versus some of these animals having horrific endings from yes. less than scrupulous <sighs> people. So what a, a lot tough, of abuse. Yeah. So lot, much abuse. It's, it's such a tough choice. It's like, you know, do you do you potentially give it to a, a bad quality of life or like this humane euthanasia? Which I mean, that's yeah, it's it's a tough choice. So I could see why people do the the free to good home and things like that to just risk Avoid, it. Avoid, yeah. yeah but, but but the the circumstances you can be putting animals in to free to good home are beyond horrific. Mm. So I do not recommend free to good yeah, home. Yeah, getting in over your head, right? Like I was just talking to one of your team members before we got on. Awesome, awesome shoulders and head on this man. I mean, he. Head on his shoulders. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Incredible individual. Because he said, man, before I want to get into a dog, I know what comes with this, right? Yes. I know that there's going to be a financial aspect to it. There's going to be a training aspect to it. There's going to be feeding or my environment or my situation I'm in. So many people get in over their heads. One of the main reasons of euthanasia in the country is because people can't afford the vet bill. So they go in, mm-hmm. the pet has an ailment. They know the pet has an ailment. They don't have the money to treat the ailment. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, how long does he have to suffer with that raging ear infection for? Mm-hmm. Till eventually some people just go into the vet to get it fixed and they take off, man. They just get in the car and they drive off and they say, hopefully he can get his ear infection fixed. So oh, yeah, wow. you hopefully more, you know, I know there's stories like that and there's also incredible stories of incredible people, but having a good head on your shoulders, knowing what you financially got to get yourself into before getting a pet can really help. And 
knowing the type of breed, let's just I, say that you're going mm, to bring home, yeah. do not bring home a border collie if you want to be that guy that's just like, hey, I got a relaxing life. I'm just, I'm a gamer. I just want to sit home all day. I don't, border don't feel like going outside. Yeah, no, I got no. a backyard, you but, know. But it's re- that's I let really him for 20 minutes. When we, when we were like researching some of these long-lived dogs, like yeah. how much is exercise? I mean, let's just talk about that. Yeah. Because exercising your dog, digging holes, having five family members uh, where, you know, no one's walking the dog and this is becoming a problem. When we looked at some of the longest lived dogs, Maggie from Australia that lived to be 30 years old, it lived on a farm with a dairy farmer. I said to Brian, I was like, how much exercise your dog get, man? And he goes, well, you know, it's, uh, I get on my tractor. I go from one end of the farm to the other. It's uh, probably about five kilometers. And I was like, oh, wow, your dog gets five kilometers a day in exercise. Holy moly. He's not like, we, we got to drive back too, right? Oh, and no. I was like, 10 kilometers of exercise a day. He goes, I'm a farmer. I, I got I got to go to the, I got to do this twice. Once in the morning, once at night. <sighs> 20 kilometers of exercise. Wow. I was yeah. like, once a day? He goes, I'm a farmer. I go there every day. We're seven days a week. Seven days a week. Now, I'm not saying for people that are listening that you got to exercise your dog 20 kilometers seven days a week. But if you want to put things in perspective and you look at these long-lived dogs that were constantly roaming, constantly moving, mm. 20 minutes in a backyard, no, no, no. not a good it. idea. Yeah. And getting a breed that's a yeah. high-end breed, that's, just it. that's a big problem. Or yanking them around. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to yank you around the block once. Yep. And it's no wonder that they're so anxious and miserable because it's all pent up. Can we talk about, so what are some of the most energetic dogs that require the most exercise? And if someone is like, yeah, I, I do want to be a responsible pet owner. I want to own the appropriate dog. What are the ones that are a bit more chill? Maybe they don't need the, it's maybe they couldn't exercise. do the 20 yeah. kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple different things. First of all, you want to make sure that when you're thinking about bringing an animal into your life, that you are recognizing what can I afford? Yes. So yeah. um, a Malamute, it takes a whole lot more food than a, than a teacup poodle, right? right. So yes. if, if you can afford a big dog with a big food bill and a big exercise requirement, awesome. You will spend more time exercising the dog and you spend more money feeding that dog. Mm. And that's great as long as you've qualified that. We also can't look at young animals and recognize what their health, what their genetic health span is, which means there are some breeds that are amazing, but incredibly prone to allergies. Like when uh. I see Westies, we have the allergy talk when they're little six-week-old puppies. I'm like, hey, listen, you have a breed that is very predisposed to allergic predispositions. So what can we do now to quiet down the epigenetic potential of your Westie expressing allergies? Because that's what we want to do now. Yeah. Knowing that you should still start a little savings account for your animal, because what if your Westie fulfills his genetic potential and becomes an itching, raising, year-round, hot, scabby mess at two years of age, and that's your future for the next 10 years? You've got to be able to financially prepare for that. Mm. So we think about breed. Yes, we think about if you're going to rescue a mutt, we think about what are the breeds that constitute that mutt. So if you have half sight hound, half border collie, or a herding breed, they're going to want to herd your kids. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to chase things in the yard. They're going to have a very strong prey drive like rabbit, squirrel, rabbit, squirrel. You might love that and you may say, oh my gosh, my dog just has one speed, high, (laughs) high and on, and that Mm -hmm. drives me crazy. That may not be a breed mix that you would want to get as a young puppy. Maybe what's best for you and kind of my speed is I like adopting 10-year-old 
lazy Rottweilers because <laughs> all they want to do is hang out on the couch with yeah. me, right? Like that is my Dude, speed of dog. Yeah. I am all about give me the oldest dog because A, I'm, I'm a physical therapist and I can rehab him, but I'm into chilled, relaxed dogs. Yeah. I don't yeah. want a high maintenance type A wound type breed because that's what I am. Yeah. I like the chilled, relaxed, lazy dogs. What are some so, other examples of some of those chilled dogs? So you have to remember that yes, breed dictates generally speaking, activity level, musculature, what they were bred to do. Yes. But a lot of this is also personality. You can get really mm. chilled sight hounds. You can get sometimes chilled herding dogs. You can get you can get animals like bulldogs, generally speaking, are known to be lazy, but there's some high energy bulldogs out mm. there too. Sure. But there are breeds that can be more laid back and easygoing, generally speaking. And then there are breeds that are wired. But what you want to look at is what's the DNA of the breed? Because yeah. that DNA carries a long, rich history mm. of what those dogs were meant to do. And that's still in them. Right. You know, you have right. a water dog. It's really hard to keep a water dog out of water. So if you if you <laughs> yeah. enjoy swimming and you want your dog to swim with you, yeah. a water dog is fantastic. If you have a pool and you, uh, you, you don't want your dog in the pool, getting a water dog, it's impossible possible to keep them out, right? Mm. They're just in the pool 10 hours a day. And that can be a, frust a marital frustration if yes. that's not what you want. Right. So I think the key is you want to make sure that you're thinking about the breeds that you are interested in acquiring to give you some idea of what you're in for, both medically and in lifestyle related. Mm. So, so the breed is like a good starting point. And then maybe... Um like if you can see the 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 dog's parents, like that will probably be an indication oh, too of yes, like how temperament. It's be. Yeah, yep. yeah. temperament's huge, right? We were just we were just talking about this the other day. Sort of like that imprint from a mother onto her child, right? Because there's data showing that, you know, and we talked about this earlier that anxious mom can create anxious children, mm -hmm. right? They did studies with rats where they had calm rats that were like licking the pups, their baby rats, and they were transferring that microbiome. And by them being calm, those baby rats grew up to be calm or vice versa. You flip it. If you've got somebody super anxious and they're grooming, uh, uh, let's say a super, sorry, super anxious rat grooming those pups, those little tiny rats will grow up to be super anxious. Mm. So the question about parents, as you just alluded to, this is really big. So sure, um, Adopting is huge. If you, if you have the opportunity, do it, right? Because mm -hmm. we've got full shelters. But there's those that want to get go out and go to a, a reputable breeder and get a dog from there. Those questions really need to be asked. Like, what are these parents like, right? Because mm -hmm. if you had two schizophrenic parents and you come home with a pup, you're going to be really sad what you're going to get in four and, to five years. And there's mm -hmm. the issue with, with factory farm dogs that many, many dogs, like coming from pet stores, they are bred in mass quantities. They're not breeding for temperament. We're not breeding for health. We're not mm. trying to improve and diversify genetics. We're not picking the sire and the dam and making sure that they're genetically comparable and that the next generation of puppies are going to be happier and healthier than the current. When, when you buy a dog from a puppy mill or from a pet store, they're just mass producing dogs to fill the people's un un overwhelming desire to get a puppy. Yeah, and, and, and they're, they're breeding for aesthetic preferences the, first. Yes, we, not you, health. It's like painting a house that is rotting by with termites. Yes. Like we're, we're, we don't know what's going on with the genetics uh, behind that dog. And so it may look like, oh, this is the, uh, this is the color of dog I want. This is exactly. the breed. But it may not have the temperament. It may not have the genes for a, a long life either. And so we don't really know what we're getting in those situations. And, and what 
what the research has shown is when we when we interviewed some of the top geneticists for the book, what they said was that a mom that's highly carrying a litter of puppies that is highly stressed, not on a good diet, not given the exercise that she needs, it releasing cortisol, those puppies are higher stressed, have more anxiety. They are born epigenetically primed to have emotional and behavior issues. So what is that? I mean, that's a tough go because mm-hmm. unless you're set up with appropriate training from the get-go, if you own a dog, you are by default a dog trainer. Now, you may not yes. be qualified as one and you may not think so, but you are. So then the second that that puppy comes into your house, you have to recognize, I'm going to take my job to raise this puppy. A, he's got to learn a different language. I have to be able to help him understand the boundaries and rules in the home in a, in a way that is fear-free and respectful of the animal. Yeah. But that training starts the minute that you bring that dog home, it doesn't stop until the day that the dog transitions. And we tend to not train our dogs until we have behavior problems, in which case we're already at frustration, mm. you know, our threshold when it comes to, I got a dog to to make me happy and I'm miserable and overwhelmed. Yeah. Mm. But so is your dog. Mm. Your yeah. dog is also this miserable is really and overwhelmed. This is big too for your audience because this is, this is one thing that's a really big problem that I'm seeing online. People want the dog early. So they don't want to wait, right? So you call the breeder up and the breeders usually, you know, there's an eight to 10 week period. Mm. Sometimes you get Joe Shady, who's who's the breeder. And he's like, you want him at four weeks? And you're like, oh gosh, I can get him younger. Mm. He'll be with me quicker. I will take him right now. Data shows you strip a puppy from its mom early. Meaning, you know, the longer that that puppy can be with this mom, the better off that puppy will be like psychologically in the future. Mm. Less anxiety, less stress. So if you're listening to this and you want to grab that puppy at like six weeks before from the breeder, don't do it, man, because you will get yourself into a huge, huge issue. I also loved your analogy, which I'm stealing about a home (laughs) that could be rotting in the inside and beautiful on the outside because that's how people pick dogs. Imagine buying a home that you didn't go into. You're not allowed into. You just can just... Buy it just from the outside, looking at it from the outside and saying to the retailer, okay, I'll take it. The realtor, right? It's a great analogy. You really need to know what's going on in the inside. Yeah. Yeah. We got a question here from Christina at the very bottom. Oh, thank you. I was like, where? (laughs) (laughs) At what point does pet stewardship exceed minimalist principles? Well, let's talk about what, what do you mean by minimalist principles? So when Ryan and I talk about lifestyle minimalism, which is different from minimalism in literature or architecture or art, although they have a lot of commonalities, what we're really talking about is getting rid of anything that is excess, right? So if you have excess in your life, then I probably wouldn't start adding more into your life, meaning, okay, well, you know, I bought all this stuff. The average American household has 300,000 items in it. I bought all of it. It didn't make me happy. So you know what I need? Some pets. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're going to gonna not only be discontented with all the stuff you have in your life, but you're going to be discontent. You're going to make your pets discontented because you don't have any of the resources to actually take care of them. Mm. And so pets can be a tremendous blessing, a joy. But if we are accumulating them the same way we're accumulating stuff then they too are going to be a burden, right? Gosh, yeah. I mean, that's a, and it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, according to a lot of data out there, you know, that, first of all, that connection is, is really important. You bring in a dog, like you had just mentioned, because you are collecting a whole bunch of things. These 300,000 items don't satisfy you and maybe bringing a dog in there. You might not think that's detrimental to the dog, but there's a lot of data to show that, A, if the, your connection between you and your dog 
is severed, or if there's that stress factor that goes on between you and your dog where, um, you know, there's nothing at home seems to satisfy you, you're hung out, you're strung out, you're a stressful individual. There's an Italian study that shows that you can actually grow a tumor on your dog with that type of mentality. Wow. So like collecting animals to try to bring yourself happiness is, gosh, it'd be hugely detrimental, not only to, to, to yourself, but also to your dog. Well, and regret. Regret is a powerful thing in the animal space. And most animal lovers end up with some level of regret, oftentimes, mm. because we look back and say, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have navigated my dog's well-being differently. I would have made different choices. I wish I had more money to feed better food. I wish I wasn't working the eight-hour job that I hate because I'm having my dog in a crate is driving me crazy. Regret causes people to have unbelievable open wounds with their animals for forever, potentially. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we did write this book is to help people identify what they can be doing preemptively so that they don't have to deal with regret. Mm -hmm. Regret is overwhelming enough that it can scar and damage you to the point that some people say, I don't want any, I love animals, and they're amazing animal stewards and guardians. They're great people. And any shelter animal would be, it, they'd win the lotto going into these people's beautiful lives because they will solely focus on them. But the human has been so damaged from not having the knowledge, the tools, the resources from a previous pet that they didn't feel they served appropriately and they can't bear to do it again. They mm. can't get over the guilt of a previous animal. And that's powerful. And we, part of the reason that we wrote this book is so many people have said to us, I just want a blueprint. I don't know how to proactively or intentionally create well-being. I don't, I don't know what foods I should be feeding. I don't know. I know that I want to create a good life for my dog, but I don't necessarily know how to think about uh, my dog's life from his perspective. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. And so much of this book is a blueprint for people that are confused to provide clarity, for mm. people that want to do what's best, but they don't necessarily know, for people that are burned from the marketing hype or don't really know where to turn to get the information they need, knowledge becomes a very empowering tool mm. to be able to make decisions that allow you to relax in to enjoying life moment to moment with the animal that you've signed up with. How do I want to ask you guys a question as, as professionals when it comes to minimalism. <laughs> I was on your social media page the other day and I, I did see a comment in there from a pet parent that said, and Ryan, you'll probably be the best to go with this. Having a pet does not make you a minimalist. Meaning if you want to be a minimalist, you should not have a pet. You're not hmm. practicing minimalism if you have a pet. Yeah. So as a cat owner, how would you come back at, let's say, that comment? Oh, uh, well... I tend to not argue with people online. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because you're like, as professionals, but man, we're the minimalists because the domain was available for seven bucks on GoDaddy, you know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, when I saw minimalism, it was about living intentionally, which I was not doing at the time. It was about using my resources and really understanding the true cost of the things that I was bringing into my life. And I think that's where, uh, and you alluded to it earlier, Karen, about people don't really consider the cost. That there's a financial cost 
But then there are all these other costs associated with it, time, attention. Like there are other things that we have to be uh, very deliberate with and make sure we have to to kind of take care of these pets. So, um, you know, what I would say to that specifically is uh, we would have to talk about what the definition of minimalism is because I think when people hear that word, you know, you ask 10 different people what minimalism is, you're probably going to get 10 different answers. Yep. But it's really just about living intentional. So can you live intentional with the cat? Sure, you sure can. Can you live um, unintentional with the cat? Yeah, you sure can. Um, you could also live intentional with thousands of dogs if you have the room for them, like I was talking about earlier, um, which a piece of me really aspires like to... I don't have, know about thousands of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no one owns thousands, thousands of dogs. Of, no, no, I'm talking about the I'm talking about the rescue the, the shelter, rescue, yeah. the, the right. rescue shelter right. in Mexico, where like yeah. she had 500 acres. And yeah, she, yeah, yeah. As a rescue shelter, and right, I, right, right. I think the the point you're making here is that, so if we talk about what is minimal, minimal, minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things, so we can make room for life's most important things, which aren't things at all. And so when we talk about living intentionally, mm-hmm. it's right there. In the title of your book, The Forever Dog, if you're going to be intentional about bringing a dog or a cat or a goldfish into your life, mm-hmm. it's forever, meaning the rest of their life is the yeah. way we need to think about mm-hmm. it. Not what resources is this going to take for me today? What kind of joys is this going to bring me immediately? Mm-hmm. But what is the complete picture? I'm going to have this dog for the next 5, 10, 15, 30 years. And so I need to plan accordingly because if I don't, then I'm not making an intentional decision. And that is not being a minimalist about it. But Mm -hmm. if minimalism is too stark of a word, then you can just say intentionalism. And so what what would an intentionalist do? They would think about the resources they're going to have to expend on bringing this pet in over the course of its entire life. Because if you're prepared for that and you you still say yes to it, you say, hell yes, I still want this pet. Well, then you're making an intentional decision. Yeah. And you have to uh, go into this loving unconditionally. And I believe that that's one of the biggest challenges that animals provide to us Mm. because you maybe didn't know that you were going to sign up to love a semi-feral kitty. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. But you also have just accepted Mac as being life on Mac's terms. Like, if he wants to be touched today, cool. And if not, you're cool with that. But yeah. what if all you wanted was a snuggle kitty? You did not get, inherit a snuggle kitty. Oh, no. <laughs> but if you <laughs> no. had your mindset on, listen, I want a kitty to hold and kiss. And- yeah. Yeah. I want to cuddle with a thousand puppies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you are doing your job loving your semi-feral cat anyway. And that is what we are called. If we Mm. bring an animal in and we say, I'm going to sign up for this animal forever, you are going to love the warts and bumps and and habits and the personality that develops in that animal. You may say, oh, it's exactly what I wanted. And you may say, ooh. Not what I expected. Wow. (laughs) This is a high maintenance dog or cat. I love you anyway. And and that's right. But I will love you anyway. And that also helps us grow as humans. That's huge. You know, it's interesting. We we had like a game night um, when my wife and I first moved in together. We did game night, had a bunch of friends over, and I was talking about the cat and how the cat was not a cuddly cat and how it didn't really like me. And one of my friends, she was like, you know, maybe Mac was brought into your life to help you with, uh, uh, with, with certain lessons. And what lessons can you learn from this kitty? And that really, I mean, that resonated with me because I was like, oh, yeah, like I am... Mr. Like, let me come up to you and and be rough with you and pet you. And, yes. cu- and it's like, but not everybody wants that. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and so, yeah, like I, that's exactly what I've done is I've kind of 
um, used him instead of like trying to force him into being a cat that I wish he was. It's more about me kind of uh, adapting to the type of cat he is. And I really have learned a lot from that cat, believe it or not. Yeah. Let's wrap up with a, a final question here. Here's another one from, well, from Lydia. How do you plan end of life decisions for your pets? So this is one, this is why I wanted to end with this one. So we wouldn't bring the mood down of the whole mm, podcast. Yeah. Right. But it is inevitable. And generally it happens before we go. In fact, the, the opposite can happen. When my mom passed, she had a dog that, um, you know, I, I found it a, a great home. One of her friends was like, love this dog already. And so like it was, it worked out really well, um, that I didn't have to take on the dog that I didn't want to take on. <laughs> but usually it's the opposite. We, we bring a dog into our lives and it lives on average 11 years, it yeah. sounds like, or maybe it'll live longer, but we get to witness it from being a baby, basically, a, a, a child dog, all the way until it's an, an old man. And we go through these various stages, but then eventually it comes time that they pass mm. or, or they're just, they have some sort of disease. You can tell it's not, it, it's not that far away. How do, we, uh, how do we approach end of life care for our pets? Gosh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a hard one to even talk about. Mm. I think every individual is a bit different. I know, I, mean, I think the greatest piece of advice I could ever give anybody is if that time does come, like that final minute, that final day, be there. Mm. I can't tell you how many pet parents I've spoken to that say, I, I, I can't see it. I don't want to see it, right? I don't want to see somebody put my dog down yeah, they, or my cat. And they just hand it to the vet and they leave. They drive off. Mm. And that cat or that dog's final minutes mm. are with strangers, right? Yeah. So, and then I talk to these people afterwards and they live with regret, a life of regret. I should have been there. Mm. I, I wasn't there because I didn't have the strength to be there. But now that it's been done or now that it's been a year, or it's been two years, I made the biggest mistake of my life not being with my pet. Haunting. It is haunting and it's something that you will live with, I can guarantee you, with regret it, it's it you made that commitment to get that pet have the commitment in my opinion in my opinion try to have that commitment to be there in the final in those final minutes which are very important and then one thing i'll add before i hand it to dr karen becker is the preparation when you get there i find you know when we put this book together one of the big things was and they talk about this in human research as well when you start to break down right typically a lot of pet parents will wait till things start to break down and then they go looking for things to try to make them that situation better, right? My dog is creaky. He can't get up. He's failing. He's losing his back end. Maybe now's a good time for me to go get some like omega-3s or some glucosamine or some chondroitin, right? And those final years of that dog are in pain, right? Like yes. the last 30% of their life, like mm. a human, right? Mm. How do you want to live? We talk a lot about lifespan. Living to be 30 would be epic for all of us. Living to be 100, to be centenarians, right? Like the Hansa tribe, right? Th mm -hmm. That live a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. Diverse gut microbiome, eating, what is it? 600 different plants a year and so on and so forth. Mm. Living a lifespan, a long lifespan is awesome, but you don't want to live a long lifespan in pain. Right. Health span yeah. is if not equally more important, living without disease, living or living out disease as long as possible or living without pain for as long as possible. So don't wait till things start to break down so that end of life period is miserable for that animal. 
Try to do things beforehand, just yeah. like in humans. If you have goals to live to be a centenarian, if you have goals to live to be a hundred, then take care of yourself in your forties and your fifties, man. Yes. Cause that's where it matters. Not when you're 80 or 90 and you start to try to do too things, late. right? Mm -hmm. It's too late. My personal definition of a forever dog is that quiet promise that I make to the animal in front of me that from this day forward, I will promise this creature to become a knowledgeable advocate for his or her physical and emotional well-being from this day forward to the day that my animal dies. I will work every day at becoming more knowledgeable at meeting my animal's physical, emotional, mental needs mm. so that as we go through life, I am not just proactively preventing disease and degeneration from occurring to the best of my ability, but that I am doing what I can to minimize lifestyle obstacles to prevent degeneration from occurring in the first place, which mm. means you're living a life potentially above the level of degeneration, but, but you are all in all slowing down the natural cycle of crashing and burning midlife that results in a body degenerating, multiple organ failure, and usually some heinous diagnosis with some wallowing for a year or two and then euthanasia. That's the traditional trajectory of a life that is not proactively, intentionally prevented from degenerating. If you're not intentionally working on preventing degeneration from occurring, your animals are degenerating right now because mm. we're not doing anything to prevent it from happening. If we have the tools and the knowledge to be able to prevent lifestyle-related diseases from occurring, that's our point of power. Yes. And the soonest and the earliest we can intervene, the better chances we have at building a really good life for our animals. But that comes through wise decisions made through having knowledge to be able to make great decisions. Yeah. And so empowering yourself to learn everything you can, to not abdicate that responsibility, to not say it's my vet's job for, to, to make my dog well. It's my husband's or wife's job. Mm. It is someone else is going to do that. Um, or my dog will tell me when they are not feeling well. By the time, dogs are amazing. They get up every day and they're like, I'm just going to live life to a maximum today. I, I may hurt. I may be creaky, but I'm just going to keep going. By the mm. time our animals show us that they're breaking, they've already, they're, they're broken. Mm, yeah. So what we want to do, not only to protect members of our own heart, but to prov but to really maximize their lifespan, is to make good decisions. But that comes down to knowing enough to not have regret. Yeah. So the earliest we can intervene with really good dealing with diet, exercise, minimizing epigenetic expression, and managing environmental, chemical, veterinary stress, mm -hmm. the 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 sooner we can work on intentionally creating well-being. And that's the first step of not having regret. Now, at some point, the body's going to transition. We're going to get old and die and so are all of our animals. Mm. And when that happens, then we pivot from a proactive preventive mentation to a palliative. I'm going to make my animal feel the best they can in this carton. Mm. So what can I do to minimize pain, maximize how they're feeling, and then focus on creating this last chapter of a really good time with my animal mm. as they are dying. And if we can, to answer her question, if we can plan a well-intentioned good life, we can also work on planning a really beautiful death. And we can yeah. cultivate that last chapter of our animal's lives in a way that allows us to milk every minute 
and be able to put our head on our pillow and say, I did the very best I could for this animal. And that's all that, and that's all we all can do is give our animals their very best and then help them through humane euthanasia when the time is right. But mm. preparing for that beforehand through good lifestyle decisions is the best way for us to not have regret and remorse, but also maximize our dog's happiness while they're here in their bodies. Mm. It's beautiful. It sounds to me like what we're saying here is, you know, it doesn't, the, the end of life care doesn't start at end of life. It starts at the beginning of life, yeah. right? Because what we're really talking about, whether your dog has a day left, a week left, a year left, we want to minimize the suffering. Well, the best way to do that is preventative. And then, yes, of course, if they are suffering, there, there are palliative solutions that, that allow you to minimize that suffering in the meantime. But you can prevent most of that through diet, exercise, stress, stress management with your pets. 100%. 100%. When we wrap up here, where, uh, where should we, obviously we want to encourage folks to check out the book. It's called The Forever Dog. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Hold it up if you're watching the video version. Where else should we send folks? Because I know you have a whole community online. Where's the best place for them to go? Well, I mean, we do have the uh, Forever Dog website, foreverdog.com, where you can go and it connects to our pages. Uh, Dr. Karen Becker uh, is the most followed vet for a reason. So it's mm. Dr. Karen Becker on Facebook. And then I've got Planet Pause on Facebook. We've got tips and ideas and tricks and interviews with scientists and so on and so forth. Mm. Beautiful. Awesome. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Yeah. Patrons, thank you so mm. much for this. Thank you for spending this time with us. Yeah. Thanks for being here. I really just admire the passion that y'all have for these animals. Like this is, it's inspiring. Well, we, we, you know what? We're, we're very thankful. And I got to just say from on a personal note, getting me out of Canada after two years being stuck in my basement, <laughs> I am so excited to come back to the United States awesome. and, and you guys being the sort of the first point of entry for me. Thank you for uh, giving me the excuse to get up and come out of my basement and come out of the real world. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for this because, you know, approaching this topic where it's like, Hey, I'm not a dog or a cat yeah. person. And I also sort of feel like I have, Josh isn't even a person person. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. yeah. I don't want to spend time with people or pets. Um, but what I, what I like about this is, is this isn't, Hey, you're, everyone is supposed to own a mm. pet. And it's also not, no one is supposed to own a pet. Although we don't even look at it. I can tell that you don't look at it as pet, ownership it's stewardship there there is uh, you're a guardian for these animals as opposed to it being another object to possess which is our laws our laws has still not changed pets are still considered property oh, in wow. in divorces like in Canada it's like a chair divided between two people that's how oh, they're not looked gosh. at as sentient beings so they yeah. yeah they look they're looked at as property but that's why that term ownership pet owner you're seeing it now transition to a, a pet parent or a pet guardian yes. per se yeah. it's because we don't look at them as property yeah and what i like from this approach is there's no shame in oh well, you don't want to own a dog what's wrong with you right in fact if someone were to prescribe owning a dog to me it could actually bring suffering to a dog because i might inadvertently neglect the dog mm -hmm. right and so we have to think about that it is an actual responsibility with a sentient being that can feel pain and suffering and and we certainly don't want to add to that. So we're talking about making intentional decisions. If we decide to bring a pet in, whether it's a goldfish, a cat, a dog, an orangutan, or whatever it is, 
What are the most exotic pets that people have? I'm sure oh, you, you deal with this quite yes, a bit. Yes, everything. And, and honestly, I would just say as an exotic veterinarian, and this is my 36th year as a federally licensed wildlife rehabilitator, wildlife do not make good pets. Mm. <laughs> exotic animals typically do not make good pets. Mm. Domesticated animals that, you know, are that will not exhibit stress cage behavior constantly. You know, animals that are that appreciate being around humans and enjoy being around people are are things that we would want to to be in relationship with is something that wants to be in relationship with us there's a lot of wild animals that do not want to be in relate like don't get yourself a cheetah they don't We're, want to well, hang and, out with and you, you guys made you know? great programming up in Canada yeah. Netflix with tigers apparently in America so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> avoid tigers yeah don't, maybe not so much that maybe no big cats huh mm. yeah. I see a lot of people with like various primates though and that, that yeah. one seems and I, I understand the, the impulse it seems like a similar impulse of wanting to have children in a way and they're really cute and like oh this one can do tricks or whatever mm-hmm. and we think about only that two percent of upside yeah. without thinking about the you know them flinging feces at yeah. you know, everyone in the house and all these other things i'm sure you've seen some some wild pets yes and yes i have seen every possible animal as a pet or people attempt to keep them as pets however most of them end up with failure which means those animals have to be rehomed either to a zoo or a secondary facility that is has appropriate housing, appropriate environmental enrichment. But most importantly, the, the damage that is done while people are trying to fulfill their desire for an exotic pet or a novelty or, you know, something new or different or crazy, the the damage done to the animal while we are trying while we're figuring out that this animal is not a good pet, mm-hmm. it's not fair to the animal that's left having been in that situation because the PTSD, emotional damage, mental damage is lifelong for that animal. Mm. Us not doing our job, knowing enough caring for animals that we shouldn't be housing as pets per se, we are damaging those animals irreparably sometimes. And then we send them off to, you know, out of sight, out of mind, we just rehome them and give them away to someone who can take better care of them. Mm. That animal is left with dysfunctional social interactions, dysfunctional relationships with their own species. Mm. They don't know how to behave as normal animals themselves. So above all, I would say don't get exotic animals. In fact, don't get any animal that you cannot know in your heart that you've done enough research that you know you are going to acquire that animal ethically from an appropriate source. You have the time and resources to be able to correctly care for that animal for the life and duration of that animal. And you know that you're going to make it your primary goal to keep that animal's existence and quality of life so fantastic that that animal's perspective is, I live the very best life because my mom or dad are making it their primary focus to have my life be exceptional. That has to be our goal as guardians. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a great place to end it. Rodney, Karen, thank you so much. I want to acknowledge you for, um, well, for your enthusiasm, for caring, and uh, yeah. just for just for the show. I, I've learned a ton. Heck yeah. And uh, I'm sure our audience has as well. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks so much for thank having you. us. And thank you, patrons. See All you next time. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it